Well, before we go any further, I think it's very important and very appropriate that we join together in a time of prayer. So if you can, just bow your hearts and bow your heads where you're at and just kind of cut off all the distractions around you and let's just pray together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to be able to worship together, to be able to realize the stillness of your presence and the beauty of all that you've created, to be able to enjoy those things and blessings that you give us. We thank you for the good health we have. We thank you for the many bountiful blessings that's given to each of us, more than we could ever imagine and dream that is at our disposal. We thank you that you care for us and you provide for every need. But yet we realize this morning, this is not about us. It's about you, and it's about worshiping you and realizing you as Abba Father and friend and provider, realizing that you are our king, you are our, our, um, all that we need in life, the sustainer of life. And we give you the praise and recognition and honor and glory for all things because we know you're magnificent. Father, forgive us where we failed you and where we sin against you. Forgive us of our neglects in our life, our hesitancy, even our lack of faith. And strengthen us as we serve you and we honor you and we recognize you every day, uh, realizing the privilege and joy of being the influence that you've called us to be, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the earth, uh, to be... uh, the, the friend to the friendless and to be the love to the loveless. And again, we just want to say we love you, we honor you, and we praise you uh, above all else in our life. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now take a moment and listen to this beautiful song done by the Gathering Gang uh, as you listen to it, uh, The Power of His Love.
Lord, renew my mind as your will unfolds in my life, in living every day. Today I want to bring a message that's entitled, How to Live a Salty Life. Now, when you think of salt, I know that automatically in your mind it creates the desire for thirst. And, and I think as we think about this message and the theme, that's what we're really speaking of. To create a thirst of all the people around us that draws them to the source of life that we all have in Christ. And yet he gives us the joy and the privilege of serving him, living for him, and being an influence for him as we become the salt of the earth. It's found in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. It's a passage of scripture that in many, many translations and scripture has a little caption above it. And it's about counting the cost of following Christ. And we're going to look at some of the statements that Jesus made and tried to give substance and meaning. So what I encourage you to do is keep your Bibles open, maybe a piece of paper and a pen in hand, because I'm going to kind of go through some of the teaching that Jesus had, more of a teaching moment uh, in this message, to try to give substance and meaning to exactly what he, what he meant, because he made some difficult statements for us to translate and what it means for our lives. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, with Jesus. So he turned, Jesus did, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it, or otherwise, after he's laid the foundation, cannot finish it? And all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation. He asks for terms of peace. 
In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Now, this is really one of those passages that's difficult to translate because we pick up on the term where Jesus uses some negative terminology. We see it as negative, but it's really got very powerful meaning where he uses the term hate, and he uses the term, you cannot be my disciple. And it becomes a problematic area of trying to interpret what does this verse or this passage mean and what is Jesus really telling us to do? Is he really telling us to hate people in our lives when he is a God of love? Is he really telling us that we cannot be a part of his kingdom because there are certain conditions? Because we also understand that it's not about doing good. It's not about uh, proving ourselves in a right living that gives us the privilege of being a part of the kingdom. So those things become problematic in trying to interpret this passage of Scripture. But it's really simple. It's when you look at things that what Jesus really meant, it makes all the sense in the world and it adds substance and flavor because in the context of the passage, he's leading up to the climax of the passage, which is the latter part in verse 34. He says all this to make the statement that you are the salt. And if the salt loses its taste, then it's of no, no avail and no good. So he's challenging us to be aware of the, the saltiness that we are representing him as the king, uh, representing the king in his kingdom because he is the one in charge of all that surround us. So how many people do you influence in your lifetime? That's a wonderful question. It's interesting that we have more influence in our lives than we could ever imagine, could ever dream. It's probably more people than you really think that you've influenced through the course of your lifetime. Sociologists think that the average person influences 250 people in their lifetime. Now, I've done the math. If we have 300,000 people that lives in Horry County, South Carolina, and if all of us can influence 250 people in our lifetime, then it only takes five people to influence 300,000 because each one has 250 reach. And as we reach that 250 and everyone we reach also has 250, and when you do the multiplication, it will eventually lead up to a total of 300,000 people. So we have more influence in our life than we probably ever could imagine or dream. So this, as you think about our touch, uh, that we have every day, the touch from our work environment, the influence that we have in our homes, the influence we have in the relationships of people around us, the influence we have when we travel, the influence we have when we're talking on the phone, the influence we have when we're emailing and texting, the influence we have wherever we are and whatever relationship we're in. And we have the opportunity to be the salt in the midst of that, in, in, in the midst of those relationships, or not be. So Jesus used salt to in, illustrate the power of influence. He told his disciples that because of the relationship with them, 
that they are the salt of the earth. He closed this extended session on discipleship with the affirmation that salt is good. But then he added the word of caution and warning, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for uh, the soil nor for even the manure pile, he says. It has to be thrown away. The salt was originally used in Palestine in a day that was actually, uh, it was taken from the Dead Sea. And the waters were allowed to evaporate, leaving the salt behind. With a few minerals, the salt would be used in that society, mostly for preserving and taking care of corruption, and the salt would keep things pure. So over time, salt can lose its flavor. And if salt loses its flavor, then it's of no good. So that's why Jesus says that if it loses its taste, it's no longer useful. In fact, if you were to take that useless salt and still throw it down into a nice green pasture, it's going to kill everything that it's thrown into. So he, it use, it's very important that you maybe put it in a path where you don't want anything to grow. And it could even corrupt uh, the fertilizer that you would use uh, for your fields. So he said you must be very careful that you don't lose the tastefulness of being salt. So Jesus is really not concerned about salt here, but he's really concerned about the disciples who lose their flavoring in their influence of the world around them. When a disciple loses the ability to influence the world around them for the good, and all the purposes involved in them being a disciple then becomes null and void. So life becomes useless in God's kingdom's purposes if we choose not to be the influence that he's placed us to be and right where we're living. And so this message is about really one question. How can we maintain a life that is salty? How can we maintain a life that is salty? Jesus gives us the prescription of doing that. In fact, he gives us three things from this scripture that can help us to understand how you and I, on an everyday basis, can maintain uh, that saltiness. So how can we keep our influence so that our lives make it easier for others to believe what we believe in, and we believe in the God that rules this world. So how can we influence uh, and, and make a, a difference in a difficult world filled with evil so that the evil does not prevail in the world in which we live? Salt was both used to give taste, but it also was used to retard the progress of corruption. So when Jesus is talking about us being the salt of the, the earth, he's not just talking about being the, the good influence. He's talking about also helping to retard the, the difficult, the, the, the evil, the unrighteousness, the ungodliness in the world in which we live. So we can make an influence in people's lives that causes them to live a life that's true, that lives a life that's, that's honoring to God. So we see these statements about salt as being the climax of the discussion on discipleship, and then Jesus begins to answer for us on how we can maintain a life that is salty. 
So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to live a salty life. So first of all, in understanding how to maintain a life of saltiness, we look at what Jesus says. He basically says, when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. And the problematic area is that one word, hate. We don't see hate in Jesus, but we see the words that is used there that's translated, trans, trans, translated excuse me, as being the word hate. So that it seems to be an inappropriate word because it doesn't match the encouraging love that Jesus demonstrated even when he was on the cross. He didn't demonstrate hate. He didn't demonstrate evil. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, he looks at his brother John. He says, Behold, uh, Mary, behold your mother. Take care of her. You see love even in a desperate, dying moment of his life. So for to translate this word as being hate, then we've got to understand exactly what Jesus meant. So basically, the word hate in this context can be understood that, that we must love him more than our family. And so if you take the word hate and translate it, love him more. So he says back in that verse, if anyone comes to me and does not love me more than his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters cannot be my disciple. In other words, he's saying, if you cannot be sold out in your love for me above anything else in your life, then you cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't sound like he's telling us to hate someone, does it? He's basically telling us, do a, do a check in your life and find out what it is that drives you to become who you are. Is it really that wife? Is it really that child? Is it really that brother, that sister, that mother and father? I hate to tell you, if it is, they're going to fail you and you're going to fail. But if Jesus is the number one priority of your life and you love him more, then you are on the path of greater success than anything that you could ever imagine. So we must love him more than our own family. Actually, some of the translations uh, especially that translated into English like the Living Bible or the Contemporary Bible, just basically translates that word hate to love more, indicating that we are to love Jesus more than we love anything else. And, you know, that was a question that was asked of Jesus. He says, you know, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's, who's first who we're supposed to love in that command? But Jesus. And then we're to move to, to our family. Then we're to move to ourself. So if we're to love him, we must love him more than we love the dearest ones of our life. Now, I love my wife. I love my children. I love the people around me. I love the relationships that I have. I love them, and they're a great priority of my life. And in fact, I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for the people who love me back. But at the same time, the, the number one priority is Jesus' love for me and my love for him. I cannot love my wife the way I'm supposed to love her if I don't love Jesus first. And the same thing with my children, the same thing with my friends, the same thing with my acquaintances, relationship, church family. I've got to love him first more than anything else before I could love anyone else. So these words 
may not be as harsh as we think they are when we begin to translate what Jesus meant. So when we meet Jesus, we have met the one who can do for us what our family could never do. This statement reflects the awareness right from that scripture of the limitations of parents, the limitations of husbands, the limitations of wives, brothers, sisters, and children, while they bless us in many wonderful ways throughout our lifetime. We have needs that cannot be met by the people around us. Jesus meets the deepest need of our life, and he gives to us a whole life through the, through the regeneration of his spirit living within us. So we are to love him more than family. And, and also in understanding what Jesus says, love him more than anyone else, we are to love him more than ourselves. And so understanding those two things in its context, the first part of the statement is easy when it's compared to the second part of the statement. Because in the second part of the statement, Jesus says, yes, even his own life. So we must not only love Jesus more than we love our family, we must love Jesus more than we love ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean you look into the mirror and say, I hate you, because that would be contrary to what Scripture teaches us. It would be contrary to the life of Christ. We are to love ourselves, but we're not to put ourselves above, our love for ourselves above any other love. And so the decision has to be made, a choice has to be reckoned within our life. What's more important, the will of Jesus or our own personal will? So when Jesus becomes a part of our life, he not only uh, creates a new spiritual DNA within us, he also gives to us a new purpose of living. He, he, he works within the will, the W-I-L-L, and he helps us get our will aligned with his will. And so his will becomes the top priority. So the people who we are going to influence in our culture for good are people who love Jesus more than anything else. That may sound simple, and it is, but it is still difficult to do. The other relationships can be so personal and so real that sometimes we struggle to make Jesus first in our devotion. But yet, when we put Jesus first in our love, those 250 people that we all have an influence of in our lifetime, the people around us begin to take notice what we become to love more than anything else, and it's Jesus. It will make, a whole, it will make life a whole lot easier to recognize that if Jesus is first, it becomes an unquestioned demonstration to see in you and I the, the exceedingly grand love of Jesus that he's made in our life. So we understand in maintaining that saltiness of life that we have to love Jesus more than anything else. All right, to answer that question with a second understanding based on the scriptures and the story that Jesus tells us and the parables he gives us of how we can maintain a life that is salty. Second of all, we must follow Jesus regardless of the cost. You see, Jesus proceeded in that passage, and if anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Now, in our days, in today's culture, crosses aren't something that we see on a, on a relative basis. About the only time you see a cross is maybe inside a, a church building, a worship center, 
or you see a cross that's put out maybe on, on Ash Wednesday as we lead up to the celebration of Easter because we focus on the cross and what the cross does for the life of the believer. And, the, and then we focus on the resurrection come Easter and the ascension and he's coming back. And so, you know, so in that society, though, crosses were something that was predominant all around them. And so he uses a simple statement. The demand is that we follow Jesus anywhere, at any cost, at any time. And so following Jesus, we must make a decision. It has to be regardless of the cost. So he tells us, carry a cross. What does he mean by carrying a cross? Is he talking about us to go out and get a couple of two-by-fours or, or four-by-sixes and we make a cross and we carry it all around wherever we go, even though that would be a great demonstration of that which we're committed to? That's not what Jesus is talking about doing. Crosses had become a part of their life in their culture. Romans used the cross as a way to punish people for when they broke the law. Romans were not crucified on a cross, only all those others who broke the law were. So the crosses was a symbol of death. So even though they may not have understood Jesus at the time of what he was saying, because they were picturing maybe a physical cross, Jesus is already beginning to speak to his disciples about you know, counting the cost of their life, bearing that cross, and it involves... Uh, dying to someone's, dying to oneself so that they can live to newness of life in Christ. So this dramatic way of saying, carrying your cross, is saying, I need you. If you're going to be a life that is salty, you've got to love me more than anything else in your life, and you're going to have to be committed to dying to yourself daily in order that Christ can live anew and afresh every day. So you must be ready for a life of commitment and a life of obedience. That's what it's all about. He's telling them, if you're going to follow me, you better be committed. And you better be obedient to me all throughout life. Well, many of those early Christians, they would die a martyr's death. So some of them would actually literally be crucified on crosses just as the Lord had been crucified. You know, tradition tells us even Simon Peter was crucified, but he was crucified upside down, as many historians write about it, because he didn't want to die a death. He thought he was not worthy to die the same death of his Lord, so he requested that he be crucified upside down. So, again, when you think about the commitment to Christ, it takes an evaluating point in our life. Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to die to self every day, abandoning your will, abandon your needs over and above his will and the needs that he has, uh, that, that supply the needs that he has for our own personal lives. And second of all, in understanding what Jesus is saying, following Jesus regardless of the cost, not only carrying our cross, but second of all, he says, follow me. This word means to join him in a way that he becomes your master and your mentor. And so he's saying, if you're going to follow me, then let me be your master. Let me be your shepherd. And let me mentor you for the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to do it by example. And as you're committed to me, you're going to do it by example to other people because you're going to allow others to see you and you're going to mentor them for the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we're talking about a salty life. We're talking about an influence making a difference in the circle of people that we're around all throughout our lifetime, 250 people or more. 
So you begin to follow him. You stay in fellowship with him so that you can learn from him, so that you can know his desire for your life. And that condition is for the genuine disciple. I am a follower of Jesus. That's what we have to agree on together. And this is surely one of the things that's involved in living that salty life. If we're to influence those 250 that we are in the sphere of our influence of life then the influence of others through them and beyond, we must be prepared to follow Jesus anywhere, at any time, at any cost. Our world is looking for men and women who believe something so deeply, who have a passion so, so real that they're ready to die for that passion. They're ready to desire for that which they believe if need be. It's Robert Murray who says this, Few who have mastered the spiritual secret whose life has been hid with Christ in God understand discipleship. A few have mastered the spiritual secret whose life has been hid in Christ and, and for God. Does this not touch the very purpose of our being on the face of this earth today? Is not the purpose of human life to do the will of God, to bring pleasure to his name, to his kingdom, and for his cause? It is our role in this world to allow the Redeemer Creator to manifest his saving life through us in a manner that pleases him, whether it's by life or whether it's by death. I, I so often think, and I've shared this story with those in our congregation on a couple of occasions, but it's so impactful for me to know that when my grandmother died, a godly woman as she was, uh, she was a prayer warrior. She believed that God could do anything. She had the faith to know that, that mountains can move and she, she, she had the faith of a mustard seed that was so beautiful. And when she died, she died the way she lived. And when she, she wrote everyone a letter in the family who did not know Christ, and she wanted her sister who was by her deathbed to make sure she mailed those letters. And when she got through with all those letters, and struggling as she was, and as weak as she'd become, and she was dying of esophageal cancer, she laid her head down on her pillow breathed one breath, and died. And I think about a person like that who says, through her example, I'm willing to, to do whatever it takes to manifest the saving life of Christ in my life through life or through death. And so following Jesus means evaluating the cost. Following Jesus means that we love him more than anything else in our life, even our family and even ourselves. But third of all, on how to maintain a salty life, and last is this, that we surrender to Jesus completely. Jesus had another admonition for those who were considering discipleship. And in the same way, he says, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So the term give up, has in it the idea of saying goodbye. Now, many of us don't like goodbyes, but there are some times in our lives that it's good to say goodbye. And so we're talking about the cost of discipleship. We're talking about the influence as a salty person. We must love Jesus more than anything else. 
We must follow him regardless of the cost, and we must surrender everything to him. Everything in our life, we must be willing to give up, say goodbye to some things in order for it to be a comprehensive commitment of a total surrender of our life to him. Whatever may be involved in your life, it may, be, it may have to come down to you saying no to some things, yes to others, surrender it to Jesus in order for you to become salty. Let's expand and see what Jesus really means by being completely committed to him. He says, if you're not willing to give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. So therefore, we're talking about saying goodbye to earthly possessions. Now, this may be the primary thing that Jesus had in mind, though I think it's more comprehensive than money or wealth. However, our earthly possessions are included in what we need to give up. This involves anything that has, anything that has claim of ownership in our life needs to be given up so that he can have ownership and make that claim in our personal life. Now, if it literally means to give up your house, your car, your money, your clothing, your jewelry, uh, you know, the phrase, your farm, everything you have, your money or anything else of value, if that needs to happen in order for you to be committed to Christ, then that may become something necessary. But I don't think Jesus is talking about uh, living as a homeless individual with nothing in life. He's talking about the reality of genuine Christian commitment, and we must be willing to say goodbye to the things that have control in our life so that he can have full control of everything within us. Does this mean that you have to give up everything you have? No, no it doesn't. It means that we understand the cost of total surrender. There are two things involved. There is first the recognition of the limitation of possessions. They cannot meet the deepest need of our life. I don't know about you. You know, sometimes you buy something new. It's really nice. It's, it's good. You enjoy it for a moment. Your emotions are high. And you're thinking, ah, oh, this is really good. It makes me happy to have this thing. But a week or two later down the road, it becomes the normal. It becomes the routine. It's no longer something spectacular in your life. It just becomes the natural part of who you are, and you lose the enthusiasm for it. So you can see possessions have its limitations, and they cannot sustain life, nor can they give life. So you must be willing to say goodbye to the ownership of that claim that that possession has in your life so that Jesus can take the claim of possession in your life and mine. Second, on the other side of it, is when you recognize their limitations, you begin to realize that they can be actually be used of God. And they come from the Lord in the first place. And so you realize that, hey, you know, if I've got a $1,000 gift that's been given to me, was it really a gift that's totally mine? Or was it a blessing that God gave me? Why not take part of that gift and give it back to God, or maybe take all of that gift and give it back to God. I like what one person did, and I would never um, uh, call his name out or her name out uh, to you, but when we first received a stimulus check through this pandemic, uh, this, this family uh, called me and said, listen, I'm blessed. I have more than I could ever need. And he said, this, this $600 that, or this $1,200 I was given initially, he said, I'm just going to give it to the church. He said, I don't need it. In fact, I didn't expect it, and I'm totally blessed, and they gave it to the church. You know, so sometimes you see the gifts that we have is, is all of God's anyway, 
And so we can, we can see those gifts as ways we can use them for him. We can use our vehicles as means of transportation to minister to people, to carry them to a doctor, to go pick up their medicine, to go to the grocery store for them, uh, to do ministry through the transportation area of our life, or to use our home to, to allow someone to come and, and live in our home for a couple of weeks or a couple of months because they're a downward part of their life. They're lonely. They don't need to be at home anymore. They need help. They need friendship. They need love. And we allow them to come into our home. We use our home as a ministry post. Or we take whatever thing it is in our life, the toys we call them, that we use, the electronics, all those things, anything that has value to us, we can use them as a greater way beyond our imagination to be used by God, to give up the ownership of those things and surrender them to God. So we understand we must say goodbye to certain things in our life, and one of those things is, is our, our, our earthly pleasure. Second of all, we must be willing to say goodbye to earthly positions. Our positions that we occupy in the world can be so important to us that we're prepared to cling to them at any cost. When I moved from one pastorate to another, I had to, you know, it was, it was almost as if you were, you were losing your position because you had served a congregation for so many years and you were moving to a new congregation that God called you to and it almost you had a sense of emptiness that you lost your position and you're having to reestablish a new position with a whole new group of people. But, you know, when I began to see that that's not the way it is, you go where God has called you to go, you be, where, be what God has called you to be, and you do what God has called you to do, regardless of the title or position that you have, then you can realize that, that giving up those earthly positions are easy. It's easy to say goodbye to them. The essential truth is this. You've already made the decision in your life that nothing will keep you from following Jesus including your earthly position that you occupy. If you ever have to make a choice between the earthly position and the will of Jesus, then you will choose the will of Jesus every time. That's a person who has counted the cost. That's a person who loves him more than anything. And that's a person who understands complete surrender to God. Third of all in this surrender is not only saying goodbye to earthly possessions, not only saying goodbye to earthly positions, but we also say goodbye to earthly pleasures. You see, earthly possessions allow us to enjoy earthly pleasures. Earthly pleasures can become very attractive to us. It's easy to become addicted to them as they keep us from being a wholehearted disciple of Christ. Jesus demands that we say goodbye, to give them up based on his wording, you must be willing to give up whatever it is in your life to be my disciple. We must never uh, surrender uh, ourselves to the one thing in our life that we can't give up. Because if we do, we're going to lose our saltiness. We're going to lose the taste. We're going to lose a part of the influence in order to influence that 250 who can influence 250 more, who can influence 250 more individually and reach 300,000 in our lifetime. So in the midst of this discussion, Jesus uses two parables, the parable of the builder and the parable of a captain of an army. Both parables teach the same They teach the same lesson. Before you start on a project, you need to count the cost. 
A builder needs to make sure he has enough money to finish the product. A leader of an army needs to make sure he has enough soldiers to go into battle. You need to make sure that you have counted the cost of discipleship. Have you ever considered what it really takes to be salty, to be the influential person God has called you to be, to serve in the world in which God has allowed you to serve, to use what he has given you for his purpose and his joy? Have you considered what it's going to take to influence 250 people in your lifetime? The answer is that the one given by Jesus is going to require that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And count the cost regardless of what it is. Be willing to, to carry your cross. Be willing to, to die to yourself and be totally committed to following him. And no one's going to detract you from that following. And it will require a total surrender of everything that you are and everything that you have to Jesus. Now, when you choose to live that kind of life, then God will be able to work through your life and make you a positive influence in the sick society in which we live. Because everywhere we go, there is need of light in the midst of darkness. There is need of healing in the midst of hurt. There's need of love in the midst of the lovelessness. There's a need to godly living in the midst of ungodly living. And you and I can be that influence in the world in which we live. So I ask you, I, I present all this to you to ask you to do one thing. Will you surrender all to God today? Will you surrender all to him today? You will not regret it. People will be blessed. And the people around you, including your wife your, or your spouse, your husband, your child, your brother, your sister, Whoever it is, your friends, your workers, your co-workers, your employees, employers, wherever you are, the people, the acquaintances, the people at Walmart, the people in your store, the people in your neighborhood, wherever you go will be blessed. Why? Because you made a conscious decision to say, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. As you're in the comfort of your own home, now, if you're like me, you can't stay too long on your knees, but if you can, bend your, your knees and get on your knees in your living room or your bed, wherever you are in your house today, fall down on your knees, lift your hands up to heaven, and say to God, all I am, I give to you. All to Jesus, I surrender. Will you make that commitment today? I promise you, you will not find disappointment in that commitment you'll only find a greater love beyond what you could ever imagine. You'll, you'll understand a greater empowerment than you could ever believe in. You'll understand a greater faith that could ever grow and blossom. You'll understand that God is not a God of, of limitations, that God is the God of the impossible. And what we see as impossible, God sees it as an opportunity to make possible in our life. Surrender your all today. You will not regret it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you allow us to surrender. You allow us to, to realize the realness of a relationship with you and what it takes in our commitment. We also realize that our relationship is not based on conditions, but one condition. And it starts with our heart loving you with all that we are. And when we become that person of love towards you, it becomes easy to give up the things that need to be given up, even the dying to ourselves daily, even the possessions of our life and the pleasures and positions, even the willingness to count the cost and evaluate what it takes to live for you every day. 
We understand obedience becomes a joy, not a dread. That living for you is a relationship that's not a burden, but a blessing. And that we realize that Christianity is not all about a religion anymore. It's more about the relationship. And we thank you that you allow us to understand the joy of surrender. Grant to each one of us who are on their knees, wherever they are, the answered prayer. Lord Jesus, can I surrender all to you today? And as I surrender all, can I count on you being Lord of everything? You'll understand the answer is a great affirmative yes. Thank you for giving me your life, he'll say, and watch what I'm getting ready to do. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Listen to this song. Listen to this beautiful rendition of Jesus, all to Jesus, I surrender. God bless you. Have a great day.